A warm welcome to you all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm so thankful you all can join us today. And also, again, I'd like to mention that we have a potluck after second service. All are welcome, and I'd, I'd encourage all of you to attend if you can. As I, the longer I'm here, the more I get to know you all, and the more I get to know you, the better I get to know this church and its history. And on two separate occasions in the past couple of weeks, I've had conversations with church members who have been here for a long time. And both of them have spoken to me about a time in our church's history of disunity. Around the year 1987, there was a situation between two pastors who were here, and there was some division that arose among them. And over time, that division trickled down into the church, and the church became very divided. And the resolution that the church came to regarding this situation is that both pastors needed to leave in order for the church to remain. And that's what happened. That's, that's what happened. That's whenever Pastor Harvey came here. And he came here in April 1987. That was a couple of months before I was born. <laughs> and now I'm here. Disunity is a part of our church's history. But that's not something just unique to us. Disunity is something that every church experiences, even the church in Philippi. But disunity is a serious threat to the church, generally to all churches and to us specifically. Disunity will always be a threat to the church because disunity is always a result of sin. And there will be sin in this life until the Lord Jesus returns. So disunity is always a threat, and as Christians, as a body, we need to pay attention to this notion of disunity. And that's the concept that we'll be dealing with this morning and for the next two weeks. Go ahead and open up with me to Philippians 2, verse 1. Disunity is grievous. Disunity happens for a number of reasons. Some of them are necessary. Sometimes you must break away from a church due to usually either immorality or doctrinal error. But other times, disunity results because of who knows. It just kind of festers and it results and, and you have to deal with it. And it's very important that we as a church are mindful of disunity here and that we approach it, and that we, that we tackle it. And by the grace of God, he has told us about disunity. And he has told us how to have a unified church. Scripture is clear. God gives us everything for life and godliness in his word. Join with me in reading Philippians 2, 1 through 5. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. 
This is going to be the passage of Scripture that we deal with for the next three weeks, for this week and the coming two weeks. And I'll have three sermons based upon this passage. This week, we're going to be dealing with the why of church unity. Why should we be unified as a church? What motives or reasons does Paul give to the Philippians for their unity? And that, for, this, for, that, for this sermon, we will cover verses 1 and the very first part of verse 2. And then the next week, we're going, going to cover the what of church unity. What exactly is church unity? If you boil it down into its most essential part, what is it? And to understand that, we will tackle verse 2, the remaining part of verse 2 that we do not cover today. And then in two weeks from now, we'll cover verses 3, 4, and 5. And there we will learn how, as a church, we have unity. So three messages coming up beginning this morning. The why of church unity this morning. The what of church unity next week. And the how of church unity in two weeks from now. So three weeks on church unity. That's where we're headed. For this morning, the why. Why should we be unified as a church? What are the reasons? And to tackle this, go ahead and read with me again in verse 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. So for the first part, we'll have two points this morning. And this is going to be our main point. Write this if you're taking notes. Write God's love. God's love. And in order to understand this verse, we have to tackle this question. Who is doing what to whom? If you look in verse 1, if there is any encouragement in Christ, what well, Paul, who is this encouragement from? And who is this encouragement towards? Any comfort from love? Well, whose comfort? Whose love? Who's giving what to whom? Any participation in the Spirit? It's specified that the participation is in the Spirit, but from whom does this participation come from and then again any affection and sympathy we're kind of left having to fill in the blanks to understand what Paul is saying and the way I want to interpret this passage this morning is interpret it in light of God in light of the blessings that God gives turn with me to James 1 17 James 1 17 that's page 1011 in your black chair Bibles Paul does not specify who these blessings come from, but theologically, it's pretty simple to understand. And James gives us the reason for why we should understand all of these blessings coming from God. James 1.17, every good and perfect, excuse, excuse me, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So with that in mind, let's turn back to Philippians 2. And these, these nouns that Paul provides us in Philippians 2.1, encouragement, comfort, participation, affection, and sympathy, are these good gifts? Yes, of course. These are blessings. And James teaches us that any good gift comes from God 
So if any good gift comes from God, and Paul specifies that these are good gifts, therefore they come from God. Pretty simple. So I'm making a theological point with interpreting Philippians 2.1. And now we have to deal with this if. Right at the beginning. So if there is any encouragement in Christ. Now the problem with this if is it kind of leaves the possibility that there is not encouragement in Christ. That there is not any comfort from love. That there is not participation in the Spirit and that there is not sympathy and affection. If you use an if, it's, it's like a hypothetical. It leaves the door open for these realities not being true. But I don't want us to take it that way. The way I want us to take it is I want us to substitute the word if. We can substitute it with either two words. Since, so it could be this. So since there is any encouragement in Christ, since there is any comfort, since there is any participation, since there is any affection and sympathy, so what that means is that there is. Or I think even better, the best way to understand this is to substitute the word if for because. Because there is encouragement in Christ, because there is comfort from love, because there is participation in the Spirit, and because there is affection and sympathy. Paul is not calling into question these blessings from God. What he is saying here is that the motives for church unity are these realities. Because of these truths, therefore, Philippians, you should be unified. That's what he's saying here. He's not calling these realities into question. He's establishing them. And the reason why there is an if here is due to there's a technical aspect of the Greek that you cannot change, but what Paul is really saying is because of these realities, not if, but because. Now let's look at these realities, and all of these realities I want us to see are manifestations of God's love. Paul's appeal here in this passage is not directed to the mind. It incorporates the mind. We should never disconnect our minds from our hearts. But the main part of the Philippians that Paul is trying to touch is their heart. This is a a plea of affection, of love, of emotion. Paul is saying here, because God has loved us so magnificently, therefore we should be unified. This is a tender appeal. This is an appeal like a parent to a child. So what are the blessings that God gives us because of his love? What are these realities? Well, there's four of them. The first is this encouragement in Christ. The idea here, encouragement, is referring to comfort. Encouragement is a kind of ambiguous English word, and in Greek it's also ambiguous. But the way I want to take it is comfort. That when we are united with Christ, as we struggle through this life, we receive blessings. And one of those blessings is the comfort of God. For the Philippians, 
Look with me in 129. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So the Philippians are engaged in a conflict. In 130, Paul says that they were engaged in the same conflict that he himself was in. And this conflict is one of persecution. The Philippians are being persecuted for their faith. And what Paul is saying is that in the difficulties of life, specifically for the Philippians, it's this notion of persecution. In the difficulties of life, Christ comforts us. Jesus says this in John 16, 33. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That is comfort. As we live in this world, we often, weekly, daily become discouraged. In this life, we're pilgrims. This is not our home. We're passing through. And as we pass through, we get bumps and bruises. And we experience difficulty and suffering. And these things are real. All people experience these realities. Jesus himself says it. In this world, you will have tribulation. But what God does for the church, what God does for the Christian, is that God speaks his grace to us. Through his word, he communicates his love. And he comforts us. He tells us that this life is fading and that one day every tear will be wiped away. There is coming a day of victory, dear Christian. And we know that Jesus has paid the price for our sins and that that reality comforts us. We become discouraged and disheartened, but Jesus says, I am with you. I am your shepherd. I will care for you and protect you. He speaks his grace and love to us. And then we have this, another, this other idea of any comfort from love. I see here Paul repeating the same idea that he just spoke of with reference to encouragement in Christ. But what I want you to take notice of is in this second blessing is that Paul does not mention a person of the Godhead here. Look very carefully with me. Right at the beginning, encouragement in Christ. That's the son. And then after any comfort from love, Paul says any participation in the spirit. So we have Christ mentioned explicitly here and the spirit. Now who is missing? The father. And I take this any comfort from love. I take this as the father's love over and over again in the New Testament. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Anytime the New Testament speaks of love, it often talks of the Father's love. And I take it to be the same reality here. This is a Trinitarian reality. These blessings that the Philippians are experiencing, this love that is being lavished upon them is from God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So this notion of any comfort from love, this love is from the Father. And as the Father loves them through the forgiveness of sins, 
through the blessing of the Spirit, through the comfort that he gives by his Son. This love takes root and it produces in them comfort. Encouragement, the same idea that was spoken of as with reference to encouragement in Christ. And then Paul says, any participation in the Spirit. The Father has given us His Spirit. God has given us the Holy Spirit. And what the Holy Spirit does is He dwells in us. The realities that we talk about in Christianity are not just floating around in the sky, but they're in us. And the way they become... The way they take root in our lives and in our hearts is by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to live in the Christian. And what the Holy Spirit does is the Holy Spirit convicts. It speaks to us of our sin, of our guilt. It speaks to us of our disobedience. But also by means of the Word of God, the Spirit applies to us the promises of Jesus Christ that whoever trusts in him will not be put to shame. And as Christians, we participate this, we participate in this reality of the spirit together. The spirit is not a special possession of just some Christians who have been baptized in him. The Holy Spirit is a reality of all Christians. We all have the spirit together, and we fellowship in him together. We fellowship in the realities that he gives us. And this is a tremendous blessing from God. The Old Testament saints did not have this. We have a better possession from God than the Old Testament saints. And that possession is the Spirit. And we have participation and fellowship together in the Spirit. And then lastly, any affection and sympathy. Oh, what tremendous blessings that these are. As you struggle and as you fail in this life, you need someone to come alongside you to encourage you and to have sympathy upon you. Whenever my child is hurt, my heart hurts for them. And that's what sympathy is, is that God sympathizes with us in our weakness through His Son. The Bible says that God became a man And Jesus Christ experienced all of the failings and difficulties of this world. And because of that, He is able to sympathize with us. He is infinitely able to sympathize with us. And so often what we need is sympathy and empathy and affection and tender love and care. Now, as I've said, Paul's argument and plea here is to the heart. Paul is trying to touch the heart of the Philippians. And one way we can understand this, taking this as a whole, is through a parent-child relationship. In In our dealings with our children, when they misbehave, there are a number of approaches to discipline that we can take. And the Philippians here are experiencing some some disunity. Paul is not specific with those details. To be frank, it doesn't matter. It's due to sin. And Paul's appeal is like a parent, a compassionate parent towards a child who misbehaves. 
when our children misbehave, we can spank them. We can put them in time out. We can remove privileges from them. There's a whole host of options that we have as parents, all of them important. But one that can be very powerful and one that Paul is using here is like this. When a child misbehaves, you sit the child on the couch and you plead with the child. You do not yell at them. You do not reprimand them. You do not spank them. What you say is, child, have your parents, have me and your mother not loved you? Have we not provided for your every need? When you get discouraged, have we not been there to sympathize and empathize with you and love you? Have we not faithfully provided for you? Have we not given you food to eat, medicine to take when you are sick, a bed to sleep in, protection? Have we not provided for you over and over and over again? Over many years we have loved you. Why do you disobey us? Why do you spurn our love? Why do you not honor what we say? Have we not proved our love towards you over and over and over again? And the answer is yes. And that can be a very effective tool for a parent to use. And the desire is that it would break down the child's heart and that the love that the parent expresses towards the child would move the child to obedience. There's no spanking. There's no yelling. The action taken is love. And the love overwhelms the child. And the child cries and says, Mom, Dad, you're right, I'm sorry. That's what Paul is doing here, and that's what God has done for us. Dear Christian, has not God provided us encouragement when we have needed it? Has God not been infinitely affectious and sympathetic towards us in Christ? Has God himself not given us his spirit who dwells in us who convicts us of sin and engenders in us a love for Christ? Has God not comforted us when we have needed it, when we have been discouraged? Yes, yes, yes. The reason that Paul gives for church unity here in 2-1 is God's love. The reason why we need to be unified as a church, the reason why Paul wants the Philippians to be unified as a church is because of God's love. God's love is so tremendous and so undeserved that when we think about it, we should be moved to being unified. That's, that's, that's the sermon. That's the why. Pastor, why should we be unified as a church? Because of the love of God. Because of his sympathy, his affection, his encouragement, his comfort. And the participation in the spirit that he gives. That's why, church. 
Now look with me. What is our response to this, pastor? That was really the main part of the sermon. God's love is the reason for our unity. But look with me in verse 2. Paul has this command. Complete my joy. And this is the second point. The first point was God's love. And if you're taking notes, write this, our response. What is our response to the love of God? What response is Paul commanding the Philippians to have here? Paul wants the Philippians to make him happy. Unity is about making God happy. Paul is speaking on behalf of God here. Complete my joy. And Paul's joy is built upon God's joy. It brings God great joy to see a unified church to see bickering, gossip, and division put away, and to see love and humility and sacrifice put at the forefront. God is honored by that. That makes God happy. When God sees us obeying Him as a church, that brings joy to His heart. Complete my joy, Paul says. That's our response. And once again, another illustration for this point. We are to make God happy because of his love for us. His love is so tremendous that the response that we have as Christians is that we are unified to bring him joy. And that disunity, we avoid disunity as a church because it dishonors his precious name. And when I was a child, this was a powerful motivator for me to obey my parents. I was not a Christian in high school. I was a false convert. I had been baptized, but the reality of sin and grace had not made themselves manifest in my life. But still, in my unregenerate state, my parents' love and concern for me had great sway over my obedience to them. As I was in high school, there were many people around me who were engaging in drugs and in drinking alcohol. And I saw this impact that it had on my parents. It tremendously grieved them. I had very close persons in my life who were doing these things. Terrible consequences arising in their life. And I saw the impact that this had on my parents. I saw how saddened they were by all of this. I saw how grieved they were. And I saw their love. I knew their love for me. And I wanted to make them proud. I didn't want to be a burden for them. I wanted to make them happy. And do you know what I didn't do in order to make them happy? I didn't do drugs. I didn't drink alcohol. And the main motivator was my parents' joy. I did not want to dishonor them. I did not want to bring shame upon our family name. I wanted to bring them joy and peace. I wanted to make them proud. And that's what Paul is saying to us. That's what God is saying to us. Church unity 
is about making God glad. His love is so tremendous to you, dear Christian. He has done so much for us that the proper response is therefore to make him joyful. Church unity is about pleasing God. It's about bringing joy to his heart. Disunity is is an affront to the love of God. Unity is about fulfilling, properly living out and appreciating the love of God. And disunity is a despisal of God's love. Church, why should we be unified? Because of God's love. And the way we properly show God our appreciation for his love is that we make him happy by being unified as a church. Father, we give you praise and thanks for your great love for us. And we pray that as a parent does to a child, that, Father, we would see your love for us, we would see your infinite mercies and compassion and love. And, Father, that would move us away from sin, away from bickering, away from infighting, away from jealousy and rivalry, away from selfishness. And, Father, that your Spirit would touch our hearts and would move us to make you glad that we would, like a child to a parent, seek to honor you because it honors your name and it makes you happy. And that we would not be disunified, we would not have disunity because it grieves you. Father, thank you for this why of church unity. We pray for a unified church here. We pray that this church, Father, CBC, would be strong. And that as a result of our inner strength, Father, that we would make a great impact in this world. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your word. In Christ's name, amen.